Welcome to another episode of the Safety Third Podcast. I'm your host, Eric Reynolds, and I have with me today my illustrious co-host, Luis Hall Valdez. Welcome, Luis. Thank you. Thank you. I couldn't miss this uh, episode with one of the people I admire most at Reynolds & More, Allie Walker, who really takes our what we do and, and delivers it at the highest level. So I wanted to definitely be a part of this. Well, definitely welcome. You just, you know, you stole my thunder a little bit there. I was going to introduce Allie as well, but hey, you know what? Works fine. Uh, we do have a special guest today. We have Allie Walker. Uh, she's the principal technical editor at Reynolds & More. She's been with us, man, since the pandemic scale up. So we've been around since 2016, but around 2020, 2021, uh, we really, uh, uh, saw an increase in demand and, and then brought on some talent. And Allie was one of the first uh, that we brought on to help out and to help out in a unique way, because usually at an engineering firm, the thing that you go and recruit for is engineers. And But things work a little differently here because we work in functional safety, we work in compliance. Uh, and I'll ask you, Luis, what is the thing that most engineers get in trouble for in school? When they're doing their homework. Engineers are not known for their writing skills or presentation right. skills or communication skills. They're uh, experts, yes, they know uh, what what they're talking about, but they don't necessarily communicate or write it all that well. Sometimes. Yeah, you'll find you'll find some outliers like yourself, Luis, mm -hmm. a good communicator, but most engineers don't go into engineering because they love documentation. Mm -hmm. They go into engineering, number one, because they've got like a internal preference for being interested in things, right? Machines and code and, you know, processes, all that sort of stuff. Whereas somebody who would maybe take a, uh, maybe a psychology degree or something are really interested in people, right? Really interested in understanding how people, they want to be around people a lot. And engineers, the stereotype, you know, some stereotypes are true. The stereotype is that engineers are always focused on things that they're introverted, that they like to work problems out in their head, and then they like to give the answer. And they don't really like you to ask them why. They just say, just, just do it. So I'm gonna ask you a joke, Allie, or I'm gonna tell you a joke. Yeah, tell me a joke. I've heard this one before. Okay. So, so what's the difference between an introverted engineer and an extroverted engineer? I don't know, Eric, what's the difference? <laughs> You should know this. Your, I think your dad is an engineer, right? Isn't he? Yeah, he yeah. was. Yeah, before he so, retired. An introverted engineer looks at his shoes when he's talking to you. An extroverted engineer looks at your shoes. You. <laughs> <laughs> I never heard that one. That's great. I got tons of tons of dad jokes, right? And it, it's so not to dog on engineers, but I don't think engineers need to be defended. They, they, they have a pretty high status. And, our culture these days. I think um, one of the things that Allie brings to the table and her influence on our company is brought to the table is the benefits of a liberal arts education in a technology company. That's one of the main things that we're going to talk about today. So stay tuned. But uh, Allie, first, we're going to get started. I'm going to say welcome. Thanks for having me. Yep. And then we're going to start off with who you are. So okay. where were you born? Where'd you grow up? Um, I was born in Orlando, Florida. And uh, so the story goes, um, I was born uh, on the day that my dad was actually finishing his engineering exams. 
Um, and classic engineer, right classic there. engineer, right? <laughs> and uh, shortly thereafter, before I was one, we started our westward migration from Orlando, Florida. Um, uh, I, I guess I've kind of learned this since working at Reynolds and Moore, but it seems like uh, engineers do kind of move a lot. And that was the, the case for my family. Um, dad traveled a lot. We moved a lot. So we uh, started heading westward um, with stop-offs in Oklahoma and New Orleans. And then by the time I was four, we landed in Salt Lake City, where I was, where I lived for about 10 years. My dad worked on pipelines, so he worked for Northwest Pipeline. And uh, during that time, he started a subsidiary company at Northwest Pipeline and telecommunications, um, microwave, microwave towers, and fiber optics. And we ended up, when I was in middle school, relocating to Seattle. And uh, I was in Washington State for over 30 years um, before I relocated to Texas about three years ago. Wow. So you, you did the, when you said you did the westward migration, you did, you went just about as far as you can. From corner to corner. In, yep. In, I guess, Alaska and Hawaii, <laughs> but as far as you could realistically can. Uh, well, good. So um, your dad had his engineering company. You said it was a telecom company? It and was. Is that what he was doing the primary, primarily during your growing up? Yeah, I think it was doing more of the pipeline engineering when I was younger, and then he started this subsidiary and completely moved over to telecom. So um, interestingly, my mom, when I was little, um, she had gone halfway through college and then started having a family. So I was the youngest. So when we lived in Utah, she went to the University of Utah and got her accounting degree. And she ended up going into kind of more corporate managerial accounting. So when my dad started the subsidiary, um, and ended up buying it out, she became the controller. So it was truly a family-owned business. My brother-in-law was a sales guy. My sister also worked in telecom. So you can kind of imagine what the Thanksgiving table discussion was, engineering and telecom. Um, and so, yeah, they ran that probably company for... <laughs> probably still is, yeah. Yeah, it is. Um, so, yeah, they had that company for a good 10 years or so. It was called PacNet, and then they, they sold it and uh, retired to Austin, Texas. And I ended up staying in Washington. Wow. Well, yeah. a, so when, when, you know, for a while there, it was a trend to say, you know, your work family, that your work <laughs> is your family. But for you, it was absolutely true. Like it was were, for them, at least, I guess you weren't working there, right? So, no, I was very, them. you know, I just remember sitting at the holiday table or dinner table and it was all the conversation, or I'd say 80% of the conversation would revolve around work. And I got to know who the key players were at the company outside of our family. And, um, absorbed as much as I could as a child, I guess. Um. Yeah. So you, so it sounds like you got an MBA in junior high. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. It did kind of, you know, when I, I went away to college, I went to WSU and it did kind of push me, I think, in a direction that I ended up deviating from my third year. I started as a business major and um, my third year of college, I was just not, not super happy, but I was 20, 21, I think. Maybe if I had started college a little later, um, maybe I would have stuck with the business trajectory. I actually really like business now, but at that time, I, you know, was young. I'm always kind of fascinated by people who um, go to college and you know know they're going to be a doctor, they know they're going to be an engineer, and they just start that path and and pursue it. And I would say I was in the other camp where um, I was there. It was a time for me, I guess, to grow up a little bit, um, you know, get my education in a in a safe college town, and uh, I ended up my third year moving over into the English program because that's kind of truly always been my, I guess, wheelhouse is um, my understanding and grasp, I guess, of writing and communication. So 
Um, but I had accumulated so many business credits by the time I moved over to the department that my university had a kind of a subset of programming. Um, one was this English business major that was under the liberal arts college. So I ended up pursuing that because I had accumulated so many business credits. And then I ended up staying, um, you know, at this time it's the late nineties, it's um, Microsoft's blowing up. There's just this uh, whole world of, I guess, um, opportunity for people like me who were getting in a liberal arts education, but we're going to use that in um, the tech sector. And that was this technical writing certificate I got, which took an extra semester of coursework. Wow. So an English business major. I don't think I've ever, ever heard of that before. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't, you know, typically I think a business degree is under um, the uh, College of Science or, you know, um, and this one was under the College of Liberal Arts. So. Wow. That's good. Well, it, it makes a lot of sense. You know, I, was, I, I like to read uh, biographies or really I watch biographies. I don't really. <laughs> but but uh, it's funny when you look at a lot of these folks from like the turn of the 20th century. A lot of more liberal arts majors mm -hmm. before they went off into industry. It was it was kind of like a you go to college and you do an English degree or a literature degree or a, or whatever it would be, and then you might go into a company and now you're an operations manager or something mm -hmm. like it, it, there there wasn't as much early specialization as I feel like we have now. And of course, there's pluses and minuses to that sort of thing. But um, yeah, so you were at, is that Washington State? Washington State University, yeah. Washington Pullman, Washington, State. out in the middle of nowhere, wheat fields for oh, miles. Beautiful, and, yeah. And they they have a technical writing program there, don't they? They right? do. Or they have a certificate program, and it's still oh, it's good. still going. I don't know how it's morphed since I got it, but yeah, it's still there. So I'm going to ask Luisa a personal question here about his academic background uh, <laughs> a little bit. So... Luis, you got an undergrad in a couple of degrees, but one of them is computer engineering, right? Yes, computer engineering. Did you is was one of your required courses technical writing? Did you have to take that? There was a presentation class right at the beginning, but it wasn't really technical writing. It was more of a presentation class. Uh, yeah, that's. A, I'm just remembering my education it's a bit dated now because i started my education in the last millennia so i guess that makes me me too makes me old. <laughs> but uh when i was uh, doing my engineering degree we had there were two mandatory classes one was engineering ethics uh, the specific ethical problems that engineers get into about working only in your discipline about confidence for your discipline about you know not uh, allowing people to bribe you, basically. I guess, I don't know if you can take a class and tell somebody you shouldn't take bribes. Like, I, you know, I don't know if that, if you have to take a class, it's probably not going to work, right? So, but <laughs> anyway, I took that one. And then there was another one that was tech writing. We had, everyone had to take technical writing. And what's interesting, both of those classes, almost everybody that I graduated with did them by correspondence through another university because they were kind of viewed by a lot of the engineering folks. Like, oh, okay, I just have to take this class, you know, and, have to knock check this box right and now when i look back um it should have it should have been a bigger focus and even some of the graduates that are coming out of the systems engineering program at utd where i teach one of them just the other day said i really feel like we need to have more emphasis on technical writing especially with all this chat gpt stuff and all the ai llms that are coming out 
just an understand we're losing an understanding of language structure and therefore losing some capacity to think properly from that so that was that was their perspective not necessarily mine but anyway i'm glad to hear that there are still tech writing programs out there so so you graduated from college with your english business degree with a tech writing certificate right mm -hmm. and then yeah. you go out and into the workforce? Or? I did. Well, and, and to your last story, I know that the, um, speaking about technical writing uh, requirements for engineering majors at my university, they did have that requirement as well for the engineering majors. And as a part of my certificate program, it's a class I never would have taken as just an English major. But uh, in order to get my certificate, I had to join um, a technical writing for engineers class. So I was the one English major in that class. And my last semester after I'd already graduated while I was getting my certificate. That was kind of interesting. And, and it was not taught by an engineer. It was taught by a, an English professor. It was, um, it was fun. But yeah, I graduated and uh, moved back to the Seattle area and um, went to work for a small software company that since I worked there has been absorbed multiple times by larger companies. Um, but this software com company wrote um, accounting software for um, construction management, heavy highway, all of that kind of stuff. And it was, um, at that time, there was a lot of user guides, there was a lot of desktop publishing, and there was also this um, context-sensitive online help. So I worked there for about a year as my first job out of college, and then I moved over to Microsoft for a year um, and did one project there. Um, it was a photo editing um, software for home users. So it was um, doing the online help system, all the procedural um, writing that went into that and the mapping, working closely with um, programmers and graphic designers and creating like back when software was shipped on CDs, um, creating that CD insert, um, which was, you know, kind of a booklet that people could use to navigate the software in addition to the online help. And I did that round, um, that program, and then uh, got a very lucrative offer from the company I'd first worked at. So I ended up moving back to that smaller company where I was, I was there for another almost 10 years. Um, so I went through very, a lot of um, full software lifecycle development, you know, updating the documentation, all that kind of stuff. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's a perfect example. You said that you, you threw out some big names there. Microsoft's a big name, right? And, I don't know how many coders and engineers they have on their staff, right? But, um, you know, most of the time engineers feel like when the code works, my job's done, right? Mm -hmm. right? But then there's a whole other business case around it is people have to know how to use it. People mm -hmm. have to know what to do when something goes wrong, you know, all of those sort of things. So the whole, it ties into user experience um, and, and all that stuff. So. Well, at the company I work with too, you know, one of the big cost centers we had um, at the smaller company I worked at, which at that time was called Dexter and Cheney, was, um, you know, we had a whole customer support department. So the whole idea being, you know, if our documentation was good and thorough, accessible, that um, we could cut back on the number of calls that our support people had to field from from clients every day. Um, so you know, thereby producing good, you know, documentation could really um, reduce that cost for the company yeah. so, so I, got, I got another joke for you oh no <laughs> that's okay yeah absolutely so, so okay uh this one's about a helicopter pilot. have you ever been on a helicopter no i haven't me neither what about you Louise? helicopter 
I have. I actually got one on uh, Las Vegas and went around the city looking oh, at cool. the city. Yeah, it was like a 15-minute ride. Yeah. <laughs> Big time. Yeah. yeah. That's cool. Okay. That's, that's valid. Okay. So uh, there's a helicopter pilot taking off from Seattle. And she flies up. Uh, and she goes around uh, the city. She delivers her cargo or passengers, whatever it is, and she comes back. Uh, but then at that point, a fog rolls in. And does Seattle get a lot of fog? I don't know. No, it's in. not like San Francisco. No, just more cloudy weather okay. and rain. Yeah. Well, in this in this case, there's a cloud, a little cloud, maybe a fog that rolls in. And the instruments finally go, go out in the helicopter. So the pilot doesn't know where she is. And she she's hovering. And finally, she's hovering slowly because she doesn't want to hit anything. Just a little bit of cloud clears in front of her. And she sees a glass of a of, a, of an office building, uh, and, and and she she looks at it and she says, oh first she's surprised oh I almost hit that building and then she she's thankful she didn't and she looks and there's a there's a man standing there in the window looking out at her in this helicopter and so she reaches down grabs her kneeboard and she writes a she writes a message on the, where am I and the man looks at it he thinks for a bit he runs back he gets a big poster board spend some time thinking, gets a marker, writes it out, and he goes and puts it up against the window. And she looks up and she sees the, the poster says, outside the window. And immediately she knew where she was, right outside of Microsoft headquarters, because that's, <laughs> that's how, the, how helpful the documentation is. <laughs> Anyway, oh. I'm probably going to get sued by Microsoft for that. <laughs> so there's a there's a there's a lesson to be learned there about that. So um, obviously you can tell I'm an advocate. I say that one of our differentiators at, at the company is our technical writing staff. Uh, engineers are great. A lot of people have smart engineers, but it all falls flat if nobody knows how to use it. Right? Nobody knows how to, especially in compliance. You can have the world's best design. But if all your documentation isn't in order, you're not compliant. So it's a, it's a big thing. So let's talk a little bit about uh, about that, Allie, if you don't mind. Um, you've got a liberal arts education and training. Um, worked for a long time with engineers. Mm -hmm. What is it that you feel like the liberal arts education brings to complement the engineering mindset? How, do, how does that make you effective? I think that um, people with a liberal arts education or background um, really have immersed themselves in a lot of um, different, you know, texts and whatnot and have, by and large, uh, developed a, some excellent critical thinking skills and uh, an kind of understanding of, of experience, um, the way things intersect, the way you can inter influence those intersections. Um, you know, communication skills, um, ability maybe to see uh, the big picture and not look at things through such a myopic lens at times. Um, and uh, really can, can facilitate a lot of, um, you know, interaction, coordination, um, ways of thinking maybe that aren't inherent to the engineering process. And, and implement those, implement changes, improvements, um, you know, work getting done, um, kind of that, 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 that 
big picture piece. You know, maybe maybe understanding the technical details is not really <laughs> where we're at, but um, also understanding maybe, and maybe this is not so much true for engineering, but you know, understanding audience. And it is true for engineering. I'm thinking really through the Reynolds and Moore lens right now, where you know the documents we create are really for a very limited audience. But oftentimes in technical writing, what you're producing is for a very um, large audience. You know, um, people who are going to have vastly different levels of understanding of, of the particular subject. So, um, you know, being able to understand the audience and take whatever content you're generating and making it usable, useful, concise. Um, you know, so that people can gain the understanding they need to use a product or understand something. And that's, that's critical. And it does apply to what we do in, at Reynolds and Moore, you know, whether, you know, a lot of times we're working with, for instance, assessors, right? And, you know, understanding what they're looking for um, and knowing the audience is, is critical. So I think a lot of times when I work with engineers, you know, they don't often are thinking about the audience lens. Sometimes they are, but um, that, that's a really important part of it. I have a question about that, Ali. When when you are looking at your audience and whether it's, you know, engineers or the final user or something, are you able to like do like a volume thing, button thing where you scale who you're you're writing to who you're talking to? A volume thing? So you're not talking about metrics like so much, but super technical, less technical, completely. Yeah, I think that's probably one of the first steps when you're creating a document. That's one of the first things that you need to figure out is who is your audience and make sure you're, I'm going to say, scaling or customizing the con the content of that document for that particular audience. Yeah. So, um, yeah, that's really important. Yeah, I think that there's two things that stuck out to me that you were talking about. You said two words. One was critical thinking and one was audience. And I'll do them in that order, I suppose. So the first thing, most engineers would say, yeah, I'm a critical thinker. I think 80% of people say they're better critical thinkers than everybody else, right? So the way averages work, that doesn't quite, <laughs> quite work out. But, you know, but engineers are critical thinkers, but they tend to have a certain way of thinking that's very linear mm -hmm. and explicit logic driven, right? And so they like to start at one end, work through the problem, develop a solution for it, right? There are exceptions to that. Software is not exactly a linear thinking type situation. I think software coding is more akin to writing poetry than other forms of engineering, uh, but that's a, for another episode maybe, right? But uh, the engineer, so they'll, they'll have that form of critical thinking. But if you go talk to somebody from a liberal arts background, that critical thinking may not fit that same linear structure but it, it's a different type of critical thinking that I think that you mentioned intersection of different types of text, right? You're, you're talking about synthesizing information from different documents and bringing together meaning out mm -hmm. of that, right? I think that's, that's what engineers like. That's why it leads me to my second point about audience, right? So I worked at a company for a while, uh, for, well, for four years, that's more than a while, I suppose. And, uh, the, the senior leaders would come and they would, most of the senior leaders were not engineers, right? Uh, and I, for whatever reason, which is, well, number one, it wasn't an engineering company, it was a utility. So that makes sense that they weren't engineers, right? Um, and they, they would always complain uh, that they bring in an engineer to tell them about some problem or some solution, right? And the engineer would come in and 
forget the audience and go super technical talking about, you know, really specific engineering things, then you lose the audience, right? So if there's anything that you don't want to do in a room full of executives is lose them, right? Their time is valuable and that sort of thing. So there was a continual push at the company. How do we get engineers to understand how to explain technical things to a non-technical audience, right? And that's that's one of the things that our tech writers help us to do. Right? Definitely. You're, you're bringing back so many memories, too. If I may, real quick, I, know, it's, I remember I had this, uh, my, my circuits lab TA, he was, uh, of course, a grad student. He was writing a research paper. Uh, and I needed a lot of help with anything engineering. <laughs> so I would go to him and I'd, I'd be like, I, I felt bad asking him for so much time, but I didn't understand. And he said to me one day, hey, Luis, could you help me write my research paper? I, it was all redlined and bloody, you know? So I my first degree is a liberal arts degree. Uh, general studies with the focus on communication. And so I would help him write his research paper and he would explain these concepts to me and it just kind of worked out for both of us. <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's a perfect example there. So um, I think, um, well, let's talk a little bit about how it works together with, um, with say a client who's interfacing with a engineering team by by themselves or an engineering and tech writing team that's truly integrated together and i'm going to leave aside the the siloed tech writing department approach where you have an engineering group that does something and then they chuck it over the wall to the tech writers i mean an integrated engineering and tech writing team um how i guess well people already know, probably know how that how it works without a tech writer so how how would a client uh, interacting with a team like that or a supervisor interacting with a team like that, how would they treat it differently necessarily? I'm asking this both of you, I guess, Luis and Ali. How would that team operate differently than, say, a strictly engineering team? That's a hard question for me to answer because I don't know really how a strictly engineering team would operate. I've never been a part of that's that. A, that's a good thing. Right. So. right. <laughs> I... What about you, Luis? You, have you been on both sides of it, right? I have. Um, and I, I, I got to put some thought into that one too, Eric. It's an interesting thing. You know, like we talked about before, usually the engineers go work on the problem, they solve the problem, and they hand it over to a tech writer who's got to figure out mm -hmm. how the solution works and then how to convert it and, you know, by then they go back to the engineer talk to him and the engineer says look i already already did it it's done like, right i'm working on another problem now it's not my job my job yeah. is not the documentation my job is to do this right you know yeah um but but i think in an integrated team i'm oh, sorry i'm asking leading questions you guys in an integrated team the tech writer is embedded with the engineers mm -hmm. so the whole time the engineers are solving the problem the tech writer is there doing documentation work along the way Yep. And and also being a voice of the audience along the way, right? So if you think about in our work, if you do a risk assessment or if you do a safety concept or you do something like that, right? There is a non-technical voice in the room that is able to add to what the engineering problem solving process is, right? So right. It's, a, it's a real value add. And I've said this for several years now, our differentiator is our technical writing capability because it just brings about better results than 
strictly um, an engineering team, a traditional engineering role. Yeah, I think I think um, I think that's become increasingly true for me since I joined the company. I think, you know, when I when I I remember when I first joined the company, Eric, and uh, you kind of got us up and running on Haras, right? That was my first introduction to the Safety V model. Um, you know, it, it, I didn't have any technical knowledge at all at that point, and so I think initially it was really hard and difficult for me to integrate with uh, engineers and the team, but. Uh, over the past three years, I've, I've gotten to know the safety view model really well. I've gotten to know, you know, the artifacts that we produce across the safety view models. So um, I said you said a non-technical audience integrating the team. I would, I would probably say that uh, while the technical writers are not engineers per se, I would say we're just more accurately a less technical audience. I think, you know, when you've been working in something for years like this, you... You, you do you do get a lot of technical knowledge that um, just makes you a better technical writer in this particular discipline, right? But um, working across these artifacts and and there's so much um, there's so many dependencies between them, right? And there's so so much tracing that goes from you know a, a safety requirement specification over to test cases and the test plans that they're produced. And so um, you know you become intimately familiar with these artifacts across the V model, how the dependencies. Um, how they work together. And from an audience and tech writing perspective, you can maybe see where the gaps are, what's missing, you know, and, and help um, support the engineer in their efforts in that perspective to some degree. And then um, also being kind of that quality assurance piece. And I just think it's interesting going back to, you know, engineering and writing and this idea maybe that engineers don't like to write or that's not their strong suit, but it seems to me that I mean, what you produce in engineering is our reports. Everything's written. It, it's all communication, right? It's not just numbers or spreadsheets or anything like that. So um, I've got to work with some engineers who really enjoy writing and who are really good at it. And I've worked with some engineers who don't particularly care for it. So um, it's also kind of reading your people, understanding, you know, engineers, maybe writing strengths and weaknesses and embedding yourself in the team accordingly. Um, and you know, scaling yourself to, to the need of the team um, in that regard. But yeah, engineering seems to me to be very, very um, writing intensive. Yeah, there's a couple things engineers need for the ideas in their head to get out there, right? Which is uh, they need tech writer to help out with the plans and they need a technician to build it, right? Because mm -hmm. the last thing you want to do is turn an engineer loose in the shop, right? Yeah. So there's exceptions to that. Man, I feel like I'm down in engineers. I'm only going to say positive things about it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and maybe the first thing I'll say is maybe we shouldn't call them tech writers because you're right, technical is in the name. Maybe we should call them word engineers or something. Documents. Yeah. But I've never seen it as integrated as I have here at R&M, Eric. I, I think that's why I struggle to answer the question. I've just never seen that type of integration. I had a friend call me just yesterday. He's one of the most brilliant engineers I know. One of the ex we went to school together at UTD, and he's just brilliant. And he called me to, uh, he's got a business idea, and he's like, hey, I don't know how to sell it. <laughs> how do I present it? How do I, you know, that's that's what he wanted filled in. And I'm like thinking this is the most brilliant guy I know. He just needs help uh, selling it, you know, writing it, present presenting it. Yeah, it's so many great ideas in his head, yeah. right? And how yeah. do you get them down on paper? How do you get them uh, to, you know, lay down on the page in a cohesive way, in an organized way, in a way that's going to get his point across? And 
um, with influence, right? So, exactly. Uh, yeah, that's really important. And I think that the technical writers as well help with validation and verification, right? What what does that mean? So validation and verification verification is really about two questions. Did we solve the problem right? And did we solve the right problem? Engineering history is full of people solving the problem right, but it was the wrong problem to be solved, right? Mm -hmm. So how do we know that the problem that we're solving is the one that our customer, our client, or the world needs, right? And it's not just the science project that we're really interested in ourselves, right? So I think technical writers help with that and being the audience's voice, the customer's voice throughout the entire project and helping guide that engineering talent and, and knowledge uh, throughout the process. So, Al, you know, you, you, you talked about this a little bit. You, you joined in 2021, maybe three years ago. You mm -hmm. just, have you It'll celebrated three years? No, next month. Next month is three years. And I think what's interesting is uh, you helped build this integrated tech writing and engineering structure that we now have. Um, and also along that way, You've got some major street cred now, I have to say, Ali, because you've been through what I would consider the most, from a compliance perspective, the most complex and difficult uh, robotics project that I've I've been involved with yet. Hopefully, we'll find some more complex ones. Right? But it took us what two years, three, almost three years. It's still variants of it are ongoing and that sort of thing first ever of its type certification. Everyone at the beginning said it could not be done and yet it, it got completed. And you were not only technical writer, but also project manager through that whole, the whole V model, the, the mm -hmm. whole of everything. And that's a rare thing. Not a lot of folks have done it. And I would guarantee you that there's only a handful of technical writers who've done it in the world. So props to you, really, really good. Yeah, it's great. I always, I love, um you know, being part of a process where I get to see like the whole life cycle, I get to be there at the beginning and I get to be, be there at the end. I mean, what you learn through all that is um, invaluable, right? And, and really will inform future efforts. Um, you know, it, it, it's, it's been great. So one of your roles now that you've kind of cemented this uh, expert status well, you have you're, you're a principal editor now, right? So that that means you you you're the person to go to, right? So I guess you know what would you like to see uh, developed in the functional safety industry regarding technical writing competency? Is it something that we should focus on for engineers to grow better in? Is it something that we should develop? You know, training and academic pipelines like the certificate program you did at WSU? Is it uh, on the job stuff? Are there, you know, maybe there's something that we could do with these LLMs that are out now to help with that sort of thing. So do you have any thoughts uh, around what's next? Oh, I, you know, I haven't really thought about that before. Um, I mean, I think every engineer uh, when they're getting their, their degree should be required to take a semester of, of technical writing. I, I don't know how you strong arm universities into implementing that, but that would be ideal. Um, I think in the absence of that, I think, um, you know, on the job training is ideal. I think lately, I think I've been kind of uh, interested in tools. Uh, I know we, we use 
you know, like Microsoft Word to, to produce all these documents. And it's, it's, I, I don't know what the future of that's going to be for functional safety. You know, the way we pass things back and forth sometimes seems a little bit um, maybe outdated. Um, I know that as technical writers, we spend a lot of time just dealing with, with that particular software that is full of gremlins and formatting issues and whatnot. And especially when a huge part of what we do uh, in functional safety uh, is document control. So it's at this point, uh, an incredibly manual process to uh, track and, um, you know, rev control and, 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 and push those things out. So I just wonder at some point if there's not going to be some more kind of automated way to do that kind of work and engage with the assessors. And it's not these pushing redline word docs to, you know, SharePoint or whatnot. Um, so the tools right now in my mind are, I think, lacking. But I th definitely think, you know, I think everybody, no matter whether you're not you're in engineering or, or teaching or whatever, you know, ongoing professional development uh, should always be encouraged by companies. And I think it's pump part of your professional responsibility as you grow your career to, you know, pursue that if it's not something that's um, pushed by your company. Um, you know, that's just growth mindset stuff, right? Um, but, you know, by and large, you know, I think most engineers I work with are, are relatively strong writers, you know, and I tend to dive into kind of more of the, um, you know, occasionally there's content issues or organization flow issues, that sort of thing. But a lot of it's just being a grammarian, you know, being a, a stickler for that quality piece and d doing a little bit more of that kind of handholding, really, truly that copy editing kind of piece. So it's funny. I'm going to bring out something that you told me a while back. I don't have permission to share, but I'll, I'll ask. <laughs> there was one time we were. I don't know, maybe a year and a half ago, where we were in like a really high stress part of a project. And uh, I, I called you up and we started, and I said, what are you doing? And he said, oh, I'm just reviewing this document. I was like, oh man, you know? And you said, no, it's okay. It's my happy place. Tech writing is my happy place. <laughs> Do you remember saying that? Yeah, I think I said it was yeah. like something stupid, like it's, I don't know if it's stupid, but in that moment it was like a warm blanket because <laughs> it was yeah. maybe, uh, yeah. Uh, I was, yeah, it was my happy place in that moment with all the other difficult stuff going on, right? It was just when I can dive into a document and um, massage it, as I, I like to use that word a lot, I guess. That's kind of corny, but um, yeah, I love deep diving into a document and, you know, making it better. That is my happy place. Well, that's good. You know, if you can work in your happy place most of the time, then you're pretty, pretty well off. There. It's not my only happy place, but I think it's probably one of my more comfortable happy places. I think it's a place where I, I guess, maybe feel a lot of my competencies in that, you know, it, it's not always, it is challenging work, but, you know, maybe not as, as challenging as some other things that I also enjoy. So it's, um, yeah, it's just kind of like second nature now. So. So I guess in the, in the end, um, you've got uh, three types of people in the world, those that are uh, interested in people, those that are interested in things, and those that are interested in documents, right? <laughs> and the, it's a good combination. I think, it, I think the, it's totally true. D, all of the above. Yeah, all of the above. All yeah. The above, definitely. Yeah. Well, good. Well, I'm going to ask you a question here as we close that I'd like to ask everybody who comes on the, the podcast to get to know you a little bit better. Uh, and I'm going to ask you, what is the most dangerous thing that you've ever done? We're a uh, a safety podcast for a safety company, but you know, 
can be the dangerous thing, most dangerous thing you've ever done or the most dangerous thing you'll admit to publicly. Okay. If there are outstanding warrants for it, please don't bring yeah. it up on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I think this is a great question because um, I'm not, I'm kind of a risk adverse person. I'm not, yeah, I don't need that need for speed. I don't need adrenaline rushes. So you'll never find me jumping out of an airplane. Um, I wish I wish I were that exciting, but I'm really not. Um, I would say yeah, I kind of, when you ask that question, two things come to mind and I've had two jobs that were both, you know, occupationally kind of dangerous. And uh, I would I would just absolutely put, like, put both of those jobs into the category. Maybe not specific tasks I did on the job, but they were jobs where I was working with, you know, chemicals. I was um, up on, you know, cherry lifts, like, doing work. Um, so I had, uh, I did spend a year, I, and we didn't really talk about this as much, but very much at all during this podcast, but I had a, a, a long time where I, I, you know, didn't do technical writing and I dabbled in a lot of other things. Um, I was, I'm also a photographer. So I worked for one of the largest fine art fabricators in the entire world. So uh, we were a foundry, but also did, um, sculpting in different mediums like stainless steel, aluminum and whatnot. So there was just general working in a foundry situation just felt like every day was inherently kind of crazy dangerous when you're around 2000 degree molten bronze and, um, you know, you're up high photographing stuff and, you know, moving expensive sculpture around to photograph it, whatnot. And I would say the other job that I had that, uh, was maybe less dangerous, but still was dangerous was um, when I worked uh, uh, in winemaking briefly for a harvest. Um, a lot of, um, nah, not super dangerous chemicals in that, but there were some, but it was mostly just um, these huge, you know, fermenting tanks and uh, balancing on the edges of them and doing punch downs. And, uh, you know, it was just hard physical labor, um, you know, and I would occasionally see a news article about someone climbing into what, because you'd have to clean out tanks all the time. People would climb, climb into these tanks and, you know, die um, because of CO2 poisoning or whatnot. So, you know, there was just a lot of safety that went into that job too. So I felt like um, in both those positions, and I had younger children at the time, and I remember there were moments during both of those jobs where I thought, you know, what am I doing? This is this is kind of crazy work. So, um yeah, I'm, I, I'm glad I did that. I think it kind of speaks to my, um, why I'm not a risk taker. I do kind of have like an adventurous drive and um, I'm glad I got to branch out and try some of those, um, I guess, different industries and experience at my career. Um, but yeah. I would have to say, if you ask people about the most dangerous jobs in the world, I don't think winemaking would make it to the top of the list, but it just kind of shows though how there are latent, hazards everywhere that industries just accept and they don't you know so i guess what you're talking about there is like displacement of oxygen in a in a confined space which is a you know another if you're working in the process sector it'd be part of the hazard and risk assessment but mm -hmm. i would doubt that there's much effort in the wine industry to formalize that i could be totally wrong i've never heard of it right but you know we don't get many calls for people to do risk assessments on a on a wine so, mm -hmm. but, you know, so, so. it's crazy too, one, just like driving fork, forklifts around, you know, you'd have, yeah. when you're racking barreling wine and we'd have barrels stacked up, you know, eight high, you know, two rows of barrels and you're just balancing these. And I mean, it's just, yeah, there's just a lot of 
a lot of stuff going on. It was, it was. No, I, I will say that I, I do know that distilleries, uh, a lot of times there's part of that that's considered an explosive atmosphere or hazardous location. Oh, yeah. And Luis, I know you've been doing some work with some clients in that recently as well, too, right? You know, but um, yeah, it's interesting. Um, and then the other one, I remember you telling me a story about the sculpture place, about climbing up on a thing and dropping things into other things. And, and that, that seemed like a, a pretty, is that a story you can share? Or is that yeah, I think because the company is not named, but yeah, we had an artist who was, um, you know, pouring, not pouring bronze, but pouring things into bronze. Uh, um, it was an experimental um, effort, I guess, on the part of the artist, but yeah, they, uh, we had these vats of bronze and they, I was up on a lift, um, videoing it and they dumped a, a huge block of ice into this 2000 degree bronze and it exploded and the whole building, this huge foundry building I was in, you know, and of course I'm up high, uh, just shook like a incredible explosion. It was absolutely terrifying. Yeah. Did you get to the shot though? I did. Yeah, I got video of it. I did. And clutch, uh, clutch, right clutch. But I don't think it's like, you know, any video that anybody really wanted to share. It was pretty it was pretty frightening, but I, I left that job pretty quickly after that that event. But yeah. Yeah. I mean I the whole time I was there I'd wear a respirator most of the time because of, you know, all the all the metal in the air and the formaldehyde on the hide in the air. We had a couple of projects where we were casting in a mixture of sand and other things, but there was some formaldehyde in that. So you know, to break it out of the, the molding, uh, kicked a lot of stuff up in the air. So yeah, it was, a interesting job. It's wild. So I mean, like, so if you think about this, you've got molten bronze at 2000 degrees and you're throwing a block of ice, which is instantly going to turn into steam, which is going to then expand and explode, which is the effect they were looking for. Right. So yeah. You see a, a magma volcano kind of looking thing. Right. But I guess they underestimated the the, the, the uh, what would, what are they called the, the kilotons of uh, the magnitude. Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah, it was it was pretty intense. Yeah, well, that, I think that might take the cake as most dangerous podcast <laughs> yet. I think yeah, I didn't seek it out, but it found me somehow through my job. Well, good. Well, hey, Allie, uh, it's a pleasure to work with you. And I'm glad everybody gets to kind of get a little insight into who you are and, and what you bring to our team and, and to the whole industry, as it were. Um, I appreciate you coming on today. And, yeah, uh, thanks for having me. come back another time. Absolutely. I'd be happy to. It's been fun.